You're listening to Long Island's number one couples podcast. I'm Christian, the boyfriend. And I'm Alyssa, the girlfriend. And this is BFVGF. Subscribe for more podcasts and be sure to give us five stars wherever you stream us. everybody how's it going we are back with another episode of bfegf Alyssa, how you doing i'm doing well christian uh. love all the energy we have today Alyssa. you tell me right before we started this episode what was it about how you starve yourself when i'm not with you but when i'm here you just gore you pig out turn into a vacuum want to elaborate a little bit when you're not here i'm like I don't literally starve myself, but I'm like, I'm going to be healthy today. Water, fruits, healthy breakfast is just two eggs. Like I'm very health conscientious. And then when you're here, I'm like vacuum, goldfish, ice cream, Oreos. We, I just love how like when you offer to cook is really just me cooking what I wanted you to cook for me. Like right just now you were like, you want me to make you a sandwich? And I was just like, oh, sure. And you were just like. Oh, okay. And so then I cooked, I made it for myself. I could have made it. I made myself a fat grilled cheese. What'd you make yourself? Ham and cheese with mayo. I see. I I don't understand the mayo gang. I'm just a grilled cheese kind of dude. I love mayo. Is there any reason why? Isn't it just like eggs? Just like that have been like scrambled and mixed with something else? You know that Big Mac sauce? I'm pretty sure it's just like mayonnaise and ketchup. Alyssa, I have never had a Big Mac. Oh yeah. You don't like burgers. Weirdo. I know, I'm really weird. But yeah, so we had grilled cheese, you had your sandwich, then we had some Oreos. I devoured some goldfish. Mm-hmm. I feel bad now, and now I can't have dinner because I'm gonna I'm gonna get heavy. You good, Christian? He's just digesting. Sorry, everyone. Yeah, sorry, I'm just digesting. Um also the ice cream sandwich I had before we ate lunch. <laughs> I feel like you're the same way though, right? Do you eat more with me? Is that confirmed? I eat when I want to eat. So, you know, last night I was feeling a pizza, so I made myself a pizza. Well, it wasn't the Screaming Sicilian, was it? No, I saved the Screaming Sicilian for when you come over, because that one's really crazy. They have like six different types of cheeses on that. Thanks, because, you know, I'm a Screaming Sicilian. Yeah, you're always so loud. I don't know what that's about, but... um. Yeah, for everybody who doesn't know, and there's no reason why they would, because I've never said it on the podcast before, I do a pizza rankings, especially during this time of quarantine. My parents, I'm like, yo, you got to get every frozen pizza that's out there, and I rank them. Screaming Sicilian, I think it came in in the eights, Alyssa. I'm not sure. So you're, whenever you come over next, you are in for some really good pizza. But last night, I had California Pizza Kitchen, which like... I was surprised how good it was. It was like really bomb. It was thin crust. You know, it was just enough for a personal pie. It was a little more healthy. Some fresh tomatoes on there. It wasn't as processed. It was just really good. Alyssa, when you get a frozen pizza, what are you looking for in frozen pizza? Are you a big toppings kind of person? Because I know when we get regular pizza, I typically do just like plain cheese on my side and you might throw some like mushrooms or black olives on your side. But frozen pizza, it's a whole nother category. Do you have any like higher standards, lower standards? Well, obviously I expect more from like a place when I get like fresh pizza because we're in New York. So obviously the pizza needs to meet a certain standard. Um, But when I get pizza like frozen, it just has to have enough flavor. The flavor has to be immaculate and it just has to be good. And usually I look for like with frozen pizza, I usually do prefer like toppings. Usually my toppings are more vegetable oriented, mushrooms or olives, just something on the healthier side because it gives the pizza more flavor and it also is healthy. So I like that. But when I like order like a full pie with my family, we usually just get like plain and like half pepperoni for my dad. Oh, your dad's a big pepperoni guy. Pepperoni is pretty good. Yeah. I don't mind pepperoni, but it's just like not what I normally go for. I just don't prefer it. Mm, yeah, I see. That's why, you know, like when you get like the frozen meals, when you do like really long flights, like I'm not sure how many flights you've been on where you get like meals during the flight. Just with you. And then once to Mexico, they gave me a cheese sandwich <laughs> and it, it wasn't like grilled cheese. It was just cheese on like a roll. 
Yeah, but so. <laughs> anyways, mm, child, anyways. On these flights, when you get the frozen food, they typically, if you ever read the menu, they're typically things that are more like spice oriented. Like typically if you get pasta on these like long flights, they'll say it's like, have, has like peppers in it or it's like something because what happens is when you freeze food, you lose a lot of the flavor. And so they, the chefs for like flights or like just frozen food in general, they overcompensate by putting a lot of like herbs and spices. And so like with frozen food, they might put something in there to add, um, let me add a little spice to that. And so they might add a little bit of that to make it stand out a little bit more because for frozen pizzas, and we've tried quite a few together, there are some where it's just like, like Amy's. I don't know if you remember when we tried Amy's, like it was really good, but you could tell it was frozen pizza. It was really one dimensional. It was kind of just like across the board. It's just like, it was just cheese on top of tomato on top of the bread, but like other pizzas, they come out, whether it's fresh ingredients or these other elements that really make something pop. I forgot how we got on the topic of frozen pizzas. But we're moving on, I guess. So, Alyssa, what are we breaking into here with uh, Mr. Dawson? Uh, Shane Dawson um, is apparently I read somewhere that YouTube is like demonetizing all of his channels. I think it's already happened from the news. I saw literally all of his platforms, all of his channels straight up demonetized. They killed a man. So it's like a GG for him. I feel like he knew this time was coming. Because after the first apology video, listen, they're going to keep digging and they're going to find stuff. And they found something that was pretty heinous. Um, I'm sure people can look it up on their own involving uh, a Mr. Shane Dawson. And I think her name is Willow Smith, the daughter of Will and Jaden Pinkett Smith. When she was younger and it was like, is he going to go down? Nobody knows. But then his wife, right? His name is Jaden, right? Uh, the wife's name is, I think, Jada. Oh, Jada. I said Jaden. Excuse me. Jaden is uh, Willow's twin. Yes. Or not twin. I th- is, is he older? He might be older. I'm not sure. But Jada Pinkett Smith, excuse me, she put out a tweet. She was like, to Shane Dawson, dot, dot, dot. I'm done with the excuses. And my man, that was the nail in the coffin. GG for my dude. What's his name again? Shane Wilson? Shane Dawson. Shane- <laughs> You good? <laughs> Shane Dawson. Sorry, that's just how irrelevant he is. But <laughs> And I'm sad because I used to stand him, but like my man's done some pretty bad things. Well, this is what's so crazy. And I was t- seeing other people talk about this. They were like, YouTube, why now? These videos of him doing this stuff have always existed, but it had to take somebody famous who is in a position of power to finally call them out to be like, Fine, we finally have to demonetize him. Because there's this there's this ethical issue where does YouTube let certain and Twitch, that's a big one on Twitch as well, let certain creators get a pass for certain content if they're generating revenue for the company. Mm. This is a big one because on Twitch you have a lot of girls who are dressed scantily clad, you know, showing off their things. And on YouTube, what? I'm just calling it like it is. like Showing off their things. Yeah, maybe they're being like a little bit sexual and it's like obviously against the, you know, terms and guidelines, whatever it is of the website, but maybe they let them go because they're a big, you know, streamer. They bring in a lot of revenue for the company for Twitch. And same thing with YouTube. Shane Dawson, even though I really didn't know, I almost said Shane Wilson again. <laughs> Shane Wilson. Like Owen Wilson. Wow. Wow. But with him, he has, so, he has probably such a catalog of videos. I can't imagine how many thousands upon thousands of videos and i got news for you if they're all greenlit for ads not only is he making money but youtube's taking a big cut of the pie a big hunk of chunka big hunk of chunka and so do the i want cheesecake now because i said hunk of chunka and now i want chunky cheesecake side note continue okay so as i was saying 
would they just let it go? Or were they just letting it go? Because these videos of him doing these heinous things to, to, with Willow talking to this underage girl that was 12, talking about this six-year-old girl now that I've heard about, like, they just let this stand because they're probably making money off of the other videos. And because he was a big creator, they were letting it slide. But finally, when they got called out, they were like, fine, we got to pull the switch. We got to pull the trigger. What's your take on it, Alyssa? Disgusting. Anything else you have to add or just disgusting? It's disgusting. Anything a little more constructive? I just, I don't know. I feel like a lot of the things that were done that I didn't even know about. I mean, our last podcast that we talked about, Shane. Um, yeah. I just want to add real quick. We, yeah, we did that podcast in the context that we did not know much about the, of these other additional stories. Yeah, more things have been have come to light since we made the last podcast. So, like the stuff with Willow, I was unaware and there was some other stuff. There's some more stuff that he said that just recently came out and it makes me more uncomfy. I did not, even though I was a Shane Dawson stan, I had not seen like any of these clips, you know, growing up. So I think a lot of them were kind of like almost like hidden under other things and I never really noticed them or you know maybe it's clips from um from videos that I haven't seen um but I I feel like for a lot of the stuff he said to children and stuff involving children and other things and he said the n-word multiple times too I feel like there's some things that you know maybe we should have looked at before now, it's kind of disappointing that the internet has only realized these things as wrong now because the stuff with children, I mean, the race thing is one thing that we talked about last time, but the stuff with children that I recently found out with Willow and all this other stuff that you brought up, I feel like we should have noticed this sooner and the internet should have done something about it sooner because, you know, how do we let somebody who talks like this about children become such a big influencer, literally called influencer. Should we let somebody like that influence our nation? Yeah, the problem is when you, be, you these individuals who are like staunch supporters of his or like followers of his, you turn a blind eye and everybody's guilty of it with their respective, you know, person they look up to. You turn a blind eye into all the bad things that they've done. And so it's like, yeah, he has these past videos that are bad, but you're like, but he makes great content now. But I mean- it doesn't matter it does, if it didn't age well. If he's somebody who just, if, if it's clear that he thinks a certain way and he acts a certain way, then that's unacceptable, especially with the things that he did. His humor that he did in those videos and the way he talked, unacceptable. And I now 100% support his full cancelization. The stuff he said about children, man, was really the nail in the coffin. The stuff he says to children, it's just like, it's past the level of like, you know how comedians they kind of get a pass for certain things because it's in the, the, um, for the sake of comedy, but the stuff that he said to children directly and like things that he's talked about involving children just kind of goes way past that. Like stuff that just kind of makes me nauseous. Like it's just gross. Yeah. I don't have too much else to say on the topic. Anything you want to add before we get into the main story for the day? I mean, I just hope he gets help and realizes you know, how wrong everything is. Maybe he'll do something to, you know, try to fix everything. But I mean, at this point, I don't know what he could do, but you know, I mean, I hope he realizes how wrong he was and I hope he gets help. Yeah. So no more. We got, we got to put Mr. Shane Wilson to the side for now. Shane Dawson. Shane Dawson. Excuse me. Excuse Excuse me. But so what I wanted to talk about today was this amazing article that I found because I was thinking about, you know, we did this, you know, last episode about the coronavirus, you know, United States, are we going to be able to go back to college and whatnot? And I was like, well, is college even worth it? No, I didn't go that far. I was like, is the Ivy League worth it? Because there's a lot of stereotypes and a lot of things that people believe might be true that aren't. And I found this wonderful article. It's, 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 I wouldn't call it dated, but it's about, I think, from a year ago. Yeah, March 2019. It's a little over a year ago from the Washington Post, and it's titled Five Myths About the Ivy League. And so I figured we can get into them, and you can add your perspective as a college student, Alyssa, and I can add my perspective as a student who attends one of these universities. And so let's get right into it. So number one on this list of the five myths about the Ivy League from this article is myth number one. In admissions... Academic brilliance is paramount. 
Now, this is the myth. This is not what they say, because they go further on in the article develop this point. So, Alyssa, before I even get into it, do you think academic smarts or academic brilliance is the number one thing that universities should be looking at when whether or not, when deciding on whether or not to admit a student? Basically, on merit is what I'm trying to say. No. Well, I'm just curious. Can you develop that point forward? I mean, I feel like there's so much more to a person than how they do um, in an academic environment. But unfortunately, um, it's it's difficult to to pick when you have so many choices. Like, for instance, with Ivy League schools, um, merit shouldn't matter as much as it does. But um, I definitely feel like it has to matter to an extent because they get so many applicants that like, Yes, you have to be more than good grades, 100%. You need to have so much. You have to be such a well-rounded person. But um, you really, you still need the grades because there are people with great grades and who also have uh, great extracurricular. So they can't just, I feel like they can't just take somebody purely on other factors because there are so many people who apply who not only have great grades but also have great extracurriculars so it's definitely unfortunately um even though really academics shouldn't matter that much it kind of has to matter when a school is trying to be selective yeah you definitely touch on some really uh, pertinent points and you can see the parallels in how the article develops further they say here Harvard and its sister Ivies do not see educating the next generation of rocket scientists, professors, and assorted intellectuals as their primary task. Instead, they select students whose qualities seem most likely to make them future members of what um, this one sociologist, C. Wright Mills, calls the, quote, power elite, or part of the ruling class, or as what the Ivy League presidents refer to as simply as leaders. So in reality, academic strength is just one of several dimensions by which candidates are ranked, including extracurriculars that you mentioned, athletics, and the, enig- and, and the enigmatic, quote, personal ranking. Harvard's internal st- statistical analyses released over the course of the lawsuit when they, but there was, you know, how there was a lawsuit pressed against them that they were discriminating against Asian Americans. We're going to get into that for just one second. Revealed this lawsuit revealed that the personal ranking carried the most weight and the academic ranking the least. This skepticism toward applicants who are one-sidedly academic has deep roots. As far back as the 1950s, Harvard's dean of admissions, Wilbur Bender, warned about the notion that, quote, the only person who belongs at Harvard is the valedictorian, the obvious intellectual, the white-faced grind, end of quote, and imposed an effective quota of 10% of, quote, top brains. So what I gauge from just underneath as they developed under this myth is how, yes, academics is not the number one thing, but it has to be a certain percentage of the people they take in. And so with my own personal experience, I just want to go off on this a little bit. So number one, 25% of the whatever the admissions class is for that year is immediately taken away by legacy admissions. Either somebody's father, somebody's grandfather, or somebody they know, or somehow related to by blood, got in, therefore they're automatically guaranteed into the school. So for them, it's not even about academic. I mean, of course, there are certain standards that need to be met to know that you are going to survive and not struggle at a you know high-performing university. So a lot of colleges, even though they don't say it, will institute like a minimum SAT score. Now, the SAT always changes. At one point, it was out of 2,400. As of now, it's out of 1,600, unless it's changed in the last couple of years since I took it. I don't know. But so a lot of colleges, even though they don't um, put it out there, they may not even look at applications that have, I'm just putting it out there, for example, like an SAT under 1,400. Like they don't even consider that. And it's not that that person, it, that person can be the most talented whatever you know, but they need to know that academically you will not be struggling, right? Now, there are, there's, oh, the whole problem here is there's always exceptions to the rule. You can see any graph, any chart that shows how, you know, maybe the United States, that's the rule. You can't have anything under 1,400 or 1,500, whatever the number is, right? But if it's a student from an impoverished nation who's international and he's got a little bit of a lower score, we want to give his family or him, I should say, a chance so he can come to the university, build himself up and, and further move his family out of po- his or her family out of poverty 
and then also contribute if they see success in that student. So as I said, up to maybe 25% is taken by, right, the uh, legacy emissions. Then you have another like 25%. I'm sorry, you want to add something, Alyssa? With the SAT and the ECT, I mean, I personally believe that um, it shouldn't be a thing. And I'll explain why. I feel that um, it's giving a disadvantage to kids who might not have enough money to afford prep and classes such as myself. I could not afford to take SAT classes like a lot of my peers um, because a lot of people I know took you know workshops and classes that helped them significantly. And another thing that a lot of people struggle with, including myself, especially with test taking, especially uh, under the pressure and stress of the ACT and ACT, um, time management. For me, taking these tests was, I had to guess on maybe almost half of my test because I ran out of time. Um, on both of them, I ran out of time. And I still managed to do like decently. I did a lot higher than average, but um, it was like, you know, for me, I feel like I could have done so much better with more time. And I, I just don't feel, and I couldn't afford to take the test again because it's so expensive. So my parents weren't going to have me take it like another time. Um, be, and cause, cause of money, it's, it shouldn't cost that much money to, for college admission purposes. You're already paying so much in my case, at least I had to pay audition fees on top of application fees because I'm a music major and I had to take a plane to, to some places to audition. So you're not even taking into account the expenses of all these other college admission things. I can't even tell you how much money I've spent or my parents have spent on college admissions and auditions and test taking alone. I just feel like the test just isn't a good, um, way to tell if somebody's intelligent because who's to say that if, um, you take a genius of the past, you know, one of those famous names we know, if we gave him an SAT or an ACT, who's, who's to say that he would even be able to finish it? Maybe he would get everything he did. Uh, he actually got to get up to right, but maybe they wouldn't finish the test because not all geniuses can take an exam in a certain amount of time. There are loads of people I know personally who are extremely intelligent, who I believe should have gotten into Ivy institutions who just really aren't good test takers because that exists. People who are academically good, but they just aren't fast test takers. And taking a test like this shouldn't be like running a marathon. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be like, um, you know, you feel rushed. It shouldn't be like running a race. It should be something where, yes, you shouldn't have, you know, all day to take it, but you know, you shouldn't feel like you have to rush through the exam. Like that's, I don't agree. So I don't feel like SAT and ACT measures maybe anything except for the only thing it measures is your wealth status. And if you can afford proper prep and if you can afford to take the test again. All right. So many interesting <laughs> points that you brought up. I want to really take the time to dissect all of them especially since we can with this um, format that we have here. So number one, the first thing that stood out to me was how you said how you don't believe the SAT should be a thing. Mm -hmm. And the great news is a lot of universities agree with you. In fact, a lot of the Ivy League universities have gotten rid of the SAT as a requirement. But here is the problem. It is not for the reason that you think. And I would just like to add as another thing I want to dissect, you know, all the, all the gripes you have with standardized testing and whatnot, the SAT, unless I'm unaware, did not bar, bar you from getting into any school except for perhaps one or two that you didn't get in perhaps because they were just really comp uh, competitive schools. Am I correct? Yeah. And there was one, I'll put that out there. There was one university that I got into where, um, I actually chose not to submit my scores and wrote a, an essay instead. So, you know, I have gotten the opportunity to not use my scores, but unfortunately the whole thing is that I, my goal I would say is to have SAT, ACT not be a thing. Because even if you just say it's not a requirement, then you are allowing students to submit their scores and let it help them. So, so although you have many reasonable concerns and problems with the SAT, the reason why you could not attend these universities was not because you scored poorly. 
but was because of financial reasons, correct? Yes. So I understand your points you're making about the SAT, but to some extent, they're not necessary. It's not that they're not valid, but I just don't feel they're as strong as you think. Well, I feel like my points were strong, but I mean, I feel like um, it's not necessarily applicable to me. Okay. Yeah. So I'll say that. I'm I'm just saying that like, yes, it could have helped me significantly, but I'm more advocating for people who experienced similar situations to me only in their case, it really did. It was really the make make it or break it point. Okay. So yeah, but so the SAT, I know you have a lot of problems with it, but it didn't, it didn't have like the craziest big impact on you. And so, but obviously your points are strong. I would say now, especially since the Ivy League universities, majority of them agree with you. But let me just explain at least what I believe to be one of the, one of, if not the biggest factor as to why they got rid of the SAT as a requirement. And it's exactly what you talked about. People cannot afford to take the SAT. The SAT, if I remember correctly, do you know how much it costs? I believe it was like $40. Um, it could have been a little bit more than that at the time. I'm not sure. Okay. Well, it doesn't matter. So whatever it is at the end of the day, it is a negligible amount, in my opinion, compared to the prospect of the amount of money you will make if you get into the university because you scored well on the SAT. Also, I think I had to pay like $50 to send my scores. Yes, of course. You also have to spend money to send your scores. But so here's like the big question, and there's so much I want to talk about, and I don't want to miss any of it. If you don't have, well, let me first say this, because I've taken also numerous sociology courses, and all of them show the same thing from all the studies that I've read. If you are destined to be a successful person, it does not matter what college you attend. Oh, and this was another point I wanted to bring up, because you mentioned, you know, geniuses of the past. Albert Einstein, these are just side points, you know, he failed calculus his first time he took calculus, right? That doesn't mean he's not one of the world's greatest mathematicians that ever lived, right? Albert Einstein always said, if you judge a fish based off its ability to climb up a tree, it will always live its life or live its whole life thinking, you know, it's an idiot, that it's stupid, right? And so everybody's talented in their own way. And if you're truly destined for success, then attending an Ivy League university or not does not change whether or not you're going to be successful because if you really have the acumen or the skills to become successful, you will find your own path. I think the average GPA of millionaires in the United States is like 2.6. And that just goes further, further to prove the point. And the reason why is this is because people who become really successful, they don't spend all their time on grades or working towards other people or working for other people with grades. They work on themselves. They start businesses. They start podcasts. They do other things to build up streams of income. They do real estate. Their primary focus is in school. Their primary focus is having, making, um, or I should say developing high income skills. But if you don't, and I want to get your take on this, if we don't have some baseline, then what, then how do we judge whether or not to admit a student into one of the most prestigious colleges in the country, if not the world? In my opinion, I feel like the best way, it's not possible though. This way that I'm saying is not possible. The best way I would say to really filter out students and to really know who the real geniuses are would just ditch the application, ditch the application fee, all of that to just have interviews in a similar way that I had to audition at schools and go there and meet this whole faculty it would be like auditioning for schools only you're auditioning for all these schools and you're playing yourself because I feel like the most intelligent people that I've met, I've only known their intelligence through speaking with them, their grades. I I have no idea what their grades are, but speaking with them, you can just tell that they're at a different level and you could just tell that there's something about them that you just know they're going to be successful. I can't tell you um, how many people I've met who they might not even have the best grades, but the real like geniuses are the ones that you can just tell by meeting them. And I feel like interviews, although this is definitely not possible, you can't meet every applicant. Interviews would be the real way to know who somebody is, what they're about. And, you know, if they're talented in any way and 
just looking into somebody's eyes, you can tell, in my opinion, what level they're at intellectually. Well, Alyssa, did you know that for all the Ivy Leagues, once you apply, you need to do an interview? Well, here's the thing. I applied as a transfer, so I didn't get an interview. Okay, we're not talking about transfers here. <laughs> that is a whole nother category for a whole nother episode. But just we're just talking about the admissions process itself, right? This article. Talking about how academic, at least the myth one, that academic brilliance is number one. And obviously it's a myth. It's not number one. There's other factors at play. Legacy and whatnot. But I did an interview. I think there was only perhaps one or two Ivy Leagues I didn't apply to. But I did an interview for all of them. In person. Do they interview every applicant? Or? Yes. Well, I didn't know that. If not every applicant, close to every applicant. They're just for, you know, like, they usually have alumni or they usually have alumni. I think, I think it's strictly alumni, believe it or not. Um, or perhaps maybe some faculty. I'm not sure. And they interview the majority trying to get all of the applicants. And so... It doesn't matter if someone has an SAT of 1,600 or 2,400. If you go to the interview and you can't look them in the eyes, then guess what? You're not getting in. And so the point you bring up about having an interview to really determine whether or not somebody could get in is also you know, a very valid point and is definitely taken into consideration. But what I'm trying to get at is this. And it, it's tough, right? There are individuals, and I'm no genius, and I'm, just, I'm very grateful to have gotten into the school I got into. I think the interview, believe it or not, was actually a big part of that. And specifically, the certain questions they ask you, how you respond to that, and they try to see what your goals are in life and who you are as a person. That's a real, you know, if you're a person with drive and a mission, you want to get something done, that, that looks really good, as opposed to somebody who's just like, yeah, I applied just for the heck of it. You know, there's a big difference there. Do you want to know something interesting? The only school that interviewed me, and at the end of the interview, they said, you're a perfect applicant for our program. Like, you're, you're perfect for our program. It was the only school, one of the only schools I didn't get into. Well, I mean, because that, did you have to submit your SAT? Yeah. Your SAT score might have barred you. But at least I know that the interview went well because they said that, like, I was perfect for their program. But that, you know, what you just mentioned goes, plays right into my point. It, it also... It's a give and take. You might have a great SAT score, but you can't talk in front of a room, but you might be able to talk in front of a room, but academically, you're not going to survive at this school. So what I'm trying to say is it doesn't matter if you're a great speaker, if you can't survive, at the end of the day, it's a school, right? If you can't survive the course load, reading thousands of pages a week, you know, and doing really hard problem sets for orgo chemistry, biology, and all these other, you know... A lot of universities, especially the Ivy League, they have like core requirement classes you need to take. And a lot of them are really hard, especially your concentration on IR. I, some, most times it's like a book a week and, and it's a thick book. It's not, you have to have the mental fortitude to push through it. And if they don't see that in the interview or if that doesn't translate on the SAT score, then your chances really aren't good. But so getting back to what I was trying to get to was how there are individuals they're destined for success. It doesn't matter if you don't get in, right? But there's people who just, frankly, just aren't good enough to get in. And it doesn't matter, you know, well, let me take that back. It does matter to some extent that what, what your interviewer is like and what the SAT score is because we need some, you know, like, we need to have like some baseline somewhere, where the baseline gets negated is in these instances of individuals who come from places where giving them the education opportunity would absolutely revolutionize their world. At my school, my admissions class was about like 1,600 people, and we got told the number. Over 30,000 people applied. So first of all, people don't apply unless you really think... I mean, people do apply anyway, just like on a whim to see if they can get in, but majority of people who apply believe or are qualified, but there needs to be, you know, there needs to be certain, you know, baselines for admitting that student. So, and it gets, it's really competitive. You know, we live in America. It's really competitive. People are really educated. People are really smart. You can have, you know, the best SAT score, but if you didn't do good in the interview, that's it. You're next. Or if you do really good in the interview, but you don't have the best SAT score, it's not good enough. You need to be hitting on all cylinders across the board. And so we need the SAT to some extent 
to distinguish whether or not it's a college. It's the, what is it? The standard aptitude test. Isn't that what the SAT stands for? It's something along those lines, but it's basically a, a college aptitude test to see whether or not you are qualified or how college ready you are. And so if you're really dedicated, the, 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 you usually it's, it's believed that you will just make it work. You know, people have resources that others don't, but if you're really destined to get in, that's why they say, you know, people apply to all the Ivies, but they say, wherever you get in, that's where you're meant to get in. Because you might have wanted to get into Harvard, but you only got into Dartmouth. And so you're I just- I would love to have that problem. But, and so you're just like, listen, just be happy. Just go to Dartmouth. That's where you were meant to be. Don't fret that you didn't get into the, like one of the hardest schools in the world to get into, right? Because it's, the way they do it is all weird across the board. And it's true. They do discriminate as it showed. But the problem is, and as it, it also isn't, the problem, the feel, why I feel like I'm talking in circles is because it literally is a circle, Right. They don't want to discriminate, but at the same time, they have to, because if it was purely off of merit and SAT scores, and it's not, it's just, it would be all, frankly, it would just be all Asian Americans in these institutions, as this article goes on to say. They say how it would just be really the highest performers, and maybe you would have some people of other races, but it would purely be Asian Americans who just have a completely out of this world work ethic, you know, and they're just, they push themselves so much harder, but the problem is all these colleges, they want diversity, and I think that's a good thing. And so what they... But the problem is you can't negate the SAT. So the problem is you still need to have written that book or you still need to have started that foundation or that organization or be the president of that club. But you also have to have the kick-ass SAT score. And so it's a lot of pressure on these kids in high school to be the best and do even more. And so, you know, like with my score and my background, very grateful to get in, but there are people at my university who are light years above me in their extracurriculars and their SAT score, you know, or even though there wasn't much room for the SAT score because I scored pretty high, but um, there needs to be some factors. And so I've gone on this long tangent, but so basically sitting from percentages to legacy, another percentage is to what they say here, second Second myth, number two, athletic skill is just like other attributes that schools value. And we will talk about this myth right after the break. And we're back. Just to reiterate myth number two here, athletic skill is just like the other attributes schools value. So Alyssa, it's no secret here that athletics is a big part of the admissions process. So as I was talking about before, the different percentage breakdown, right? 25% 25% to legacy, another 25 to 50 for sports, all the different sports we have, anywhere from water polo to football. I mean, it's every D1 through like D3 sport under the sun. It's insane. So the actual percentage chance that people have of getting into the institution is so low. We're talking half of a half of like percentage points here. because, And it's also like 50-50 split like boys and girls most of the time. Or it's very close, maybe like 53-47. So, I mean the Harvard stereotype, you know, the ideal way to get in is you got to be, you know, a preppy, uh, legacy who does crew, you know, so you can, you can do canoeing and whatnot. And so like, that's really like, you almost guaranteed it, especially if you come from wealth, that's, you know, def- definitely number one factor. And we're going to get into that a little bit later about another myth regarding, uh, wealth and need blind, whether or not you get admitted or not. But so yeah, athletics plays a really big role. So yes, they might do away with the SAT that you like, but only if you're going to be like, the next greatest baseball pitcher of all time, or like a really good football player that you might go to uh, the pros. I feel like they shouldn't. I mean, I understand why they need to put an emphasis on sports because they need to have the number one uh, sports teams in all areas. But in all reality, I mean, I feel like it's giving students like, first of all, if you're really great at football, who's to say that you're even academically, uh, all the way there, like enough to be able to, um, succeed in these schools. Like what if, I mean, I, I, there has to be, there have to, there, I can't speak. There have to be, uh, athletes out there who have gotten into amazing institutions and have struggled academically because they're only there for their athletic ability. So it's definitely, I mean, I feel like there shouldn't be as much as an emphasis as there is because another thing is that it's giving students like a false sense of like achievement to the point where they're going to enter the real world after college and they could, they're great on a crew team, but can they hold an office job? I'll give you another big problem with it. The Ivy league does not offer financial aid, need-based financial aid. 
they only offer one type of financial aid and it's for scholarships for sports. And that's definitely not fair. That's a really big problem. A lot of people, because the whole idea is this, they will, I'm trying to think about how I want to say it. And think about this. Oh, no, 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 wait, wait. I messed it up. Excuse me. I want to take that back. They, no, they give you financial aid, obviously. Nobody, not everybody's paying 70000 to go to these schools. They give you financial aid, a percentage based off what your family could afford. I want to take, yeah, I made a mistake, but they give you, they don't give you academic scholarships. That's what I meant to say. They give you school, schol- they, I can't talk, school scholarships. They give you sports scholarships, if you're really good on sports, but not academic scholarships. And to me, it's kind of unfair, right? If you think about it, but at the same time, it's not because the only reason why you would go, the only way you would get into the school is if you were like smart enough to get in. And so it's like everybody's smart. So it's, it's different, at least in the Ivy leagues, other schools and colleges, there's much more of a, um, gap, I guess. And like, who's the smartest student there versus not the brightest, but at the Ivy league, it's understood that like everybody's kind of smart. If you're there, listen, there's always exceptions to the rule, but there, there aren't academic scholarships because they're all academic institutions. Like you're already smart that you, if you go there. This like, hmm. I'm, this really made me think like what you just said brought up an interesting question in my mind. So America, American schools, we have a huge emphasis on sports. Is it like that everywhere? Do you know? Well, in America, we have so many different sports in other parts of the world. And when, we, when I mean that, I mean like really Western Europe where the other like competing academic institutions are. The main focus is honestly on footballers. There's soccer and tennis. Those are like the two big sports over there. So they, they only really have those kind of teams. They don't really emph- emphasize all of the sporting categories. They, they don't really emphasize I mean, and I know international kids, they don't really emphasize sports at all because if you think you're going to go pro, you just join a club or you go practice. Like I knew somebody whose brother, cause they were international was like in college. I was at the college level, but wasn't in college. You put it on hold because he was training in Switzerland to become a professional football or soccer player. So they don't even mix really i mean i'm of course i'm sure they have some sports teams but it's not nearly as emphasized as it is in the united states in europe it's really like at college they just focus on academics and whatever you're studying that's like the big thing over there and then the sports is like if you if you think you're going pro you go train for it but you don't do that while you're at school i kind of wish it was more like that here yeah but unfortunately america's different yeah we different And so I don't want to spend too much time on that myth. Anything else you want to add? Otherwise, I'm going to carry on. I think we covered that myth well. Okay. And so myth number three, and I don't want to spend too much time on this one because I want to get to the next one. Ivy League colleges are the nation's most selective schools. Obviously, that's not the case. Look at Stanford. Stanford's like number one. They're not, you know, they're nowhere near the Ivy League. They're so much higher, I should say. But I also meant that in a geographic sense. You got Stanford, MIT, CIT, California Institute of Technology, Going uh, across the pond, you know, in England, you got Oxford University, Cambridge University, you have Sciences Po in France, all these prestigious institutions, not in the United States, or not even in the Ivy League, I should say. And yeah, you have to go to the school that's right for you. If you want music, if you're a music music based person, you could still succeed well at the Ivy League, but maybe you should shoot for like a conservatorium or like other things. You have to go where you will get the most. We have to go where you study what you want to study. And I also feel like you should go to the school that you can afford because I know a lot of people who um, are like me where they can't afford a really huge school, but they go anyways and they take out a lot in loans. And I mean, school's expensive. It's way too expensive. It should not be nearly as expensive as it is, but um Keep in mind that, you know, those loans are going to follow you. So you should take out, you know, the amount of loans that you think you can pay off in a decent amount of time because you don't want to overwhelm yourself with going into debt, you know, till you're 40. And so moving on to myth number four or five, and this is the big one that we're going to spend a lot of time on. Myth number four, aid and need blind admissions have democratized the Ivies. So this gets into another percentage of the pie breakdown of who gets admitted to the schools. So we have legacy, right? And you have athletics, but it goes even further. 
they will admit you to the school based off of if they see you having the prospect to become rich or if you are already rich and then to donate to the school. So this whole idea here is that aid and need blind admissions have democratized the IVs. Now what that means is a lot of schools say they're need blind. So it doesn't matter if you're dirt poor. We're still, if we think you're worthy, admit going to admit you to the school. The fact is that is just simply not the case. It doesn't matter what you know propaganda they push. If you are the son of Jeff Bezos, if you're the son, how many times? I, I mean, I remember when I was going on tours of universities, like I was at um, Georgetown down in Washington, D.C., and, and the person, the tour guide was talking about how, yo, I met Bill Gates and his son, you know, right on this bridge right here that we're crossing over. You don't think that if Bill, I mean, I just mentioned poverty, but it's on the wealth side too. Like it doesn't matter how rich you are. If you didn't get good enough grades, we're not going to let you in because we're knee blind and we're really just focused on whether or not you think you can get in or you're worth it to be here, right? You don't think if you're the son or daughter of Bill Gates and they see that last name and they see the donation history of your parents to that school that you're not going to get in seriously, the whole idea that schools are knee blind is an absolute joke, not true at all. And so you have people who are either super rich or super poor. Well, because it's a joke, if you're super rich, you're probably guaranteed in, right? And if you're super poor, the idea is that it's supposed to be like, so it's supposed to work as like an affirmative action, like we give you a chance, but the reality is they may not because if they don't think you're going to be successful or if you're not successful already, they may not admit you on that factor alone. But at the same time, because I feel like I'm walking in circles here, they might admit you because they want to give you a chance. And that's why you have a lot of instances where individuals are like, yeah, me and my friend, we both applied to the same school and she got in and I didn't even though I had a better SAT score than her. But did you know like your friend is a minority, maybe she identifies with a certain ethnicity or her family, maybe you didn't know was super poor compared to yours and they wanted to give that family a chance to build themselves out of poverty because they understand how monumental and how big of a change it is if somebody goes to an institution like the Ivy Leagues um, or like an institution in the Ivy League and it could change their life. Do you know if they take into account sexuality? You know, I can't say, but the answer is probably yes, because when you apply to the Ivy League schools, and I think it's all schools in general, when you do whatever it is, like through the Common App, you have to sign a waiver that you will not request to see how like they came to the decision on why to either deny you or accept you to the school. And here's the reason why, because there was a big story many years ago about an individual, and she did a story about this on BuzzFeed, how she requested to see like the admissions counselors like file on her and she had gone to Yale because Harvard, Yale, all the Ivy League schools, they keep files on all the individuals and the students that they admit and straight up, they don't care because they know nobody's going to see because you signed the waiver. They just write on it. We like the fact that she is a minority, that she identifies with this gender. You know, if it's, if you don't, uh, you know, adhere to strictly male or female, because they might try to be more um, inclusive with other groups and that's a great thing but it just goes to show that there is discrimination happening either good or bad for certain people like they'll straight up write families worth a billion dollars might be great to have in the school for future donations like there was a guy we renamed it um friedman hall i believe it's called now on the main green at my school because the guy was he was a graduate and he was like a Goldman Sachs executive and he donated $25 million to the school to have the building redone. I'm not saying don't donate because it's because of individuals like them and philanthropists that donate that we can afford to give financial aid to students to come and have greater facilities. That's great. But at the same time, you think his son's not getting in if his son grows up and wants to go to that school? You know? What's your take? I mean, yeah, I agree. I feel like um, with like wealth and stuff, I feel like they're they're only blind with lower income people i guess but i feel like like you were saying i feel like they would be less blind to um you know extreme wealth and like notable names so i feel like they can't really even though they you know in a way they could be blind to an extent for certain students i feel like 
it's either all or nothing. So they really shouldn't even say that they're, you know, wealth or blind to status when, you know, some people are getting an advantage because of how wealthy they are. The article goes on to say, but these well-intentioned initiatives, meaning being need blind, have produced disappointing results. A recent study by researchers at the Equality of Opportunity Project based on anonymous tuition records and tax filings reveals that Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, Penn, and Brown have more students from the top 1% of the income distribution than from the bottom 60%. Obviously, they're taking a disproportional amount of very wealthy, extremely wealthy top 1% individuals as opposed to people that are in lower income brackets. Moreover, of the 10 highly selective colleges that enrolled the highest shares of low and middle income students, none are in the Ivy League. So what that means is Ivy League takes preference to very rich, oftentimes legacy individuals. Article goes on to say, in practice, Ivy League admissions demonstrate little preference for poor and working class students. And a 2006 study that examined 19 selective colleges, including Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, former Princeton president Bowen and others concluded that, quote, applicants from low socioeconomic backgrounds, whether defined by family income or parental education, get essentially no break in the admissions process. More recently, a statistical analysis released during the Harvard lawsuit revealed that socioeconomically disadvantaged applicants received at most a very modest, quote, tip in admissions. So they say they're knee blind. That ain't the case, sis. It's all or nothing. Even even though technically they have no preference, like they don't they don't um, care if you're, you know, um, in middle class or if you're poor. Sure, they don't take that really into account. But the fact that they take into account if somebody's extremely wealthy means that they take wealth into account. So you can't say you're, it's like saying you can't say you're blind in general if you can see out of your right eye. You know what I mean? You're not overall blind. Therefore, you can't say that you're blind for the middle and lower classes and then not be blind when it comes to really, really wealthy people because obviously they're taking into account wealth um when it comes to the top one percent so they can't they can't make that statement and say that they're blind if they're not so as they claim to be need blind with wealth a lot of schools not being necessarily need blind i'm not sure if i mentioned this before how they talked about how they're getting rid of the sats the reality is the reason why they're getting rid of that is because a lot of individuals can't either afford to take the sat or they live in a country where they can't get access to it you know if you're in like hungry or like Haiti, or like some country that's like very poor, or just doesn't have access to the resources to take the test, then they don't want to hold it against you. But because it's something that they highlight, that means it's a new standard. Meaning if you don't take the SAT, it's a big problem. You better have a good reason why you didn't take the SAT. You can't just not send it in because you didn't feel like it or you didn't want to. So what that means is, you know, for people who genuinely could not afford to take it or come from a place where they couldn't, makes sense. But you have to really take the SAT because it's another bar that has to, because if you don't have the SAT, then you you need some standard to judge whether or not a student is viable or not. So because they said that you don't need to take it anymore, that now means that you have to take it because if you don't, there has to be a good reason why. You can't just say, uh, because they said they don't need it, I'm not going to send it. No, 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 you have to. It's like when they say how the SAT2s, which are like these additional tests you can take that are specified in certain areas like mathematics, science, or language, when they recommend a lot of schools, you have to take like two, you know, one in maybe chemistry and one in maybe biology. It's not a recommendation. Sis, you have to send that in or you're not even going to be considered because if you didn't take those additional tests, they want to know why. And if you didn't have a good reason, guess what? You're not getting in. I I like your point and I, um, I definitely think that taking away the SAT and ACT um, creates a lack of that extra uh, area that they can see of you because they need something else to judge you based on. Um, but in the instance where I, in one of the schools that I applied to, I didn't have to submit my score. They gave me the option um, where if I didn't submit my scores, instead I had to opt to take a supplemental uh, sup- supplementary um application where I had to write an additional, I think like two essays and include more about myself, which I 
like. And I feel like if schools are going to take away the SAT and ACT, which I feel like they should, but if they're going to have it be an option, then it's, it's not fair to not include something else that people can submit about themselves because you're taking away an aspect of an applicant because now the people who submit the SATs are going to have an advantage because that's another aspect of that person. So I feel like schools that take it away should do what this school, I'll say, I'll say the name temple. I got into temple, but what they did is they have like, um, the temple, I forget what they call it, but it's like, um, it's like a supplement that you take if you don't submit the SAT scores. I feel like all schools that make it um, optional should include a supplement that you have to write like an essay or two if you don't submit the scores to give you another aspect as an applicant. Alyssa, for every college, especially in Ivy League, you have to write multiple, supp- uh, um, what, what's the word? Supplement essays. Supplementary essays. They should have you write more. If you don't no, 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 submit no, no. it, then you have to write additional essays. No, Alyssa. Alyssa, for Stanford, when I applied... There was like 15 additional supplements. Everything you said is not that it's invalid, but it's true. It already happens. The SAT is just another component, but the whole common application essay for all the, for all the Ivy leagues, I had to write multiple essays on multiple random topics. Super long. You've got to, first of all, you got to write the common app, which is an essay. And then you have to do all these supplements for all the other schools. So what you said already exists. The SAT is just another dimension. Maybe uh, if you already have, I mean, in my case with Temple, it was essays, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is that they should just add another aspect. Maybe for Ivy Leagues, it shouldn't be essays. Maybe it should just be something else, uh, like another, an extra video or something to submit. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm really not sure. The the Temple University is obviously not, I mean, because we talked about prestigious colleges before, Temple is obviously not Duke or Georgetown or like it's these other schools are clearly high above it. So maybe if they don't have such a competitive pool, they could be willing to do away with SAT and be like, just write us another essay and we can judge you off that. But when we're talking about the best of the best applied to these schools and still don't get in, you need to have these additional parameters that they need to get through. And that's why the SAT I think is still in place. And even for schools that say they're getting rid of it, that means you have to take it. So myth number five, closing off the five myths of the Ivy League. And we already touched on this. Ivy League graduates graduates dominate leadership positions in America. That's not true. As I said before, uh, like an average millionaire GPA is like 2.6. Anything you have to add? I mean, I definitely don't think the school you go to uh, 100% defines your success because you also have to take into account the fact that a lot of people who go to Ivy League institutions already have enough money and enough stability in their lives. Maybe they have um, famous relatives or family, famous family members where they're already set for life. They're already given a position of success before they even step into the workforce. So your success is definitely not determined by the school you go to. Sure, going to an Ivy League institution can certainly help you build connections and um, build resources to stabilize your career. It certainly doesn't 100% define your success because, I mean, I believe that, you know, in my life, I'm going to be successful in some field. I don't know how successful or in what field exactly, but as long as you have the worth ethic and you have the drive and you can honestly, you know, with... um, with the whole thing with, um, what is it where you create your reality and you put forth ideas of success? The best way to become successful is to, you know, listen to affirmations and to just have a really, really strong ethic and to work really hard because obviously you can create your own success. You don't have to, you know, believe that you won't be successful because you didn't go to a good school. So yeah, in a comprehensive 2017 study of uh, about 4,000 senior executives, this was drawn from 15 uh, sectors, including the public government. Researchers at the University of California at Riverside found that barely 10% attended Ivy League colleges. Ivy League graduates were most represented in industries involving media, publishing, journalism, and the arts. But even there, they were a decided minority. So once again, Ivy League, more of a liberal institution. It's really for the creative individuals. That's why you have on here media, publishing, journalism, more entertainment industry oriented. And that's why I think Ivy League is a great fit for me because these are all industries that I'm interested in possibly going into as an adult for a career. 
But overall, yeah, if you're going to be successful, if you're destined for success, you find your own way. You don't need to necessarily go to the best university. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything else, because that's all the five myths about the Ivy League. Uh, and they are all myths, you know? Athletics is super important. Academic brilliance, obviously, is not the most paramount, uh, paramount thing, you know? They do take. They're not knee blind, even though they say they are. Yeah. You know? You don't have to go to an Ivy League school to, you know, get into a great industry or be, you know, a leader and whatnot. But the one point that stuck out to me that you just mentioned was about how, you know, a lot of people, they come and they congregate in the Ivy League and you make great connections. And that's really what it's about. The Ivy League, to some extent, the whole concept of it really is a myth. Because although, yeah, you have to be super smart, you have to be great academics um, or have great academics and do really great across numerous other fields. It's really just a congregation of the intelligentsia from across the country and across the world. They just want to bring together all the people that they think are going to be future leaders. And it's not surprising that you find out a lot of our current representatives, a lot of our current senators, a lot of world leaders know each other, not because they're world leaders, but they knew each other because they went to college together. So the Ivy League, you know, that's what they always say. Like, oh, who was your roommate in college? Especially if you went to a very famous college because you might be best friends with the next president of the United States. You know? And so it's all about having these connections and they all, you all help one another succeed. So the whole concept of it being based on academics and really it being the Ivy League. The Ivy League, to some extent, is nothing more than just a melting pot of people who are going to help each other get to the top. And that's really kind of what it is to some extent. Of course, it's about the education about the extracurriculars, but at the end of the day, it's all about people wanting to secure high positions, internships and whatnot. And the way you make those connections to get the jobs that nobody else can get is because you knew them or you grew up with them or you went to college with them. And it was at the Ivy league. Yeah. I feel like a lot of presidents have gone to Ivy league institutions. Well, I think Yale has more, the Skull and Bones um, secret society there had more presidents than uh, any other Ivy League institution. To further solidify my point about how it's about just aggregating people so they can all succeed together and help one another, the Ivy League has, I forget what they exact call them, I guess they're clubs, I should say, and they're in Manhattan. They're in the city. And I was ever, thinking about these. And have you ever been to one of them? And for all my Ivy League interviews, a lot of them were held at the clubs in the city, especially the Yale Club. The gentleman who interviewed me was like an astrophysicist from Russia. And, you know, because the Yale Club is right across the street from the UN. Coincidence? I think not. A lot of connections that people don't even realize. You know, you go right from Yale, maybe become a politician, maybe you join the UN, you represent a country. Who knows, right? I'm IR. As when I was younger, I was thought possibly about being a part of the United Nations, being a translator with a foreign language, right? You never know where you're going to end up. And so you go into the Yale Club, and it's the most. It's straight out of like a John Wick movie. It's insane how just fancy it is. I mean, we're talking. It's basically a club just for the really rich alumni. And it's so elite that if you are a current student at one of the, if you're a current student at one of the Ivy Leagues, you can't go into the club of your own school until you graduate. It's strictly for alumni. So can you imagine being so elite that it doesn't matter if you attend Yale, you can't go to the Yale club until you graduate the school. And then there's a fee, I think, to be a part of the club. Alyssa, there's a whole, it's, it's, it's what, what's the phrase? They're like, it's a it's a private or it's a it's a small club of people and you're not in it. And so I'm just so grateful to, to some extent be a part of the club. But like, how am I supposed to get inside? What is it? It's like how you like yelling at me from outside of the club. You can't even get in something <laughs> like that. Uh, do you know if uh, significant others can go with with uh, the alumni? Oh yes, I'm sure. Of course, yes. Or would I have to wait outside? You might have to wait outside. I don't know. <laughs> But I mean, I'm talking rooms worth millions of dollars, the upholstery, the leather, the, I mean, like a, like a, especially in the Yale club or people who know that have been inside, there's like a 30 to 40 foot painting of like 
George W. Bush and George H. W. Bush, you know, George Bush Sr., because they were father and son. They both went to Yale. These are former presidents of the United States. And we're talking very elite, exclusive clubs. And so when you get into the Ivy League, you're in that club. And it doesn't feel like it. But all the people you talk to are high-level, high-performing, high-achieving, and as long as you keep in contact with them, you're all going to help each other get to the top. I think it's more, I think that I truly believe that Ivy League is more about connections than academics. It's really more about who you sat next to in that class than about what you learned in the class. Because you're going to learn no matter what you listen to the professor, you read the books. That's the given at these institutions. It's about who you talk to, who you relate with. I, trust me, it's really clear to discern in my school. Oh, yeah. All the rich international kids, they'll all congregate at this coffee shop, Shubu, whatever it's called, at this time. They'll talk with each other because they'll go, hey, I'll go visit you in Hong Kong when I'm in the area, or we'll meet you over in this country or whatnot. Then there's the people, you know, you pick out and you can see already the connections and the friendships forming. And you can already see that people are helping each other be successful and get these exclusive elite positions. And so, yeah, to some extent, the Ivy League the concept of it just being elite institutions is a myth because you can get in based off some extent just wealth alone, right? To some degree. But it's really, it's, I think it's truly more about the connections than it really is about the academics. And so, yeah, those are five myths about the Ivy League. Thank you all for joining us on this super weird episode. I feel like I was just talking in circles this whole time. I probably was. It was probably really hell for everybody listening. But yeah, what were we talking about? Shane Dawson in the beginning. Then we got into the myths of the Ivy League. I don't know. Just pure chaotic episode, but you know, that's BFUGF. Yeah, we're kind of crazy, but you know, gets kind of entertaining to hear us ramble, I think. Yeah, definitely future episodes. Gonna try to have a little bit more of a, uh, a structure. A structure, yeah. All right, so thank you all for listening. We'll catch you in the next one. <laughs>